0: The Drinking Hour on Food FM.
1: Rum Edition in association with the Whiskey Exchange Rum Show.
0: You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world.
2: Rum is having its moment in the sun, tipped as the next gin. Sales have spiked, driven in large part by the premium end of the market. If I'm entirely honest with you, it was very much the other end of the market that rather put me off rum a couple of decades ago, but now I really do feel like I'm missing out on something. So where should a rum novice like me start? What makes it so special? How do you choose a good one? To what extent does its extraordinary history play into the present day product? Does color matter? What about flavoring? What about age? So many questions, but we have answers from two of those who know the category inside out. Dawn Davis, MW, buyer for the Whiskey Exchange, and Mitch Wilson, global brand ambassador for Black Tot Rum, both of whom are taking part in the Rum Show at the end of this month. More about that later and how you can take part. But first, Dawn and Mitch, thanks very much uh, indeed for joining us here on The Drinking Hour.
1: Thank you you for having us.
2: You're welcome. Uh, Dawn, your passion for spirits knows no bounds, but I think I'm correct in saying that rum has a very special place in your affections. Tell us why.
1: Uh, Absolutely. I I think I probably fell in love with rum about, well, not that long ago, actually, probably about four years ago. And, you know, I think there was something about the kind of, I always say, one of uh, a good friend of mine says, if you're drinking rum and you're not smiling, you're drinking the wrong rum. And, you know, there's always this sense of when I am drinking rum I am happy I'm smiling I think there's a real sense of joy de vivre with with rum and it's you know it it's, can be hugely complex and I think it's one of the most kind of spirits where you can really kind of do so much with it you can put into cocktails you can drink it neat you know you can just add it in a simple serve and I think there's something about that that's very very appealing you know I, I love white rum as much as I love some of the older expressions of aged rums it's a just a hugely exciting category at the moment as well you know you don't just have rums from the Caribbean, which is what most people traditionally think of, but there's rums coming up from all over the world now. It's really amazing products out there. So it's a hugely exciting category. And I think also the people that are within the category are are just wonderful and beautiful people
2: as well. Well, Mitch, you're one of those wonderful and beautiful people, presumably, (laughs) uh, in the category. I I say
1: no to that. Mitch is not me? (laughs) Um,
2: Mitch, tell us um, how you got involved in RUM and why you find it uh, so special.
3: Um, It was was pure chance, really. uh, A few years ago, Uh, started working in bars and uh, a very good friend of mine a guy called Jim Wrigley said if you if you ever want to learn how to bartend come find me and at the time when I was ready for that he was running a bar in Notting Hill called Trailer Happiness which is one of the world's great rum bars and then I remember my first my first ever shift there was doing a stock take with him as he was calling out each rum and each island and country and how much was in each bottle and um it just opened my eyes to the world of rum. I'd never seen anything like it before. You know, I, I grew up in Essex where my introduction with rum was Sailor Jerry and Coke, you know, and to, to <laughs> my understanding, there was nothing more than that. And then going into a bar like Trailer Happiness, but if anyone who's listening hasn't been, it's, it's just this incredible experience. You've got 300 rums on the back bar. Uh, back in the day, they used to be, everything was on fire and they'd be, you know, breathing out Ray and nephew across this copper roof and sending out fireballs everywhere. And there's just, there's just this energy and this passion and something about rum, which for me just stood out from all the other spirits and, and made it completely unique and fascinating. Well, it's really interesting. You mentioned the, uh, the experience, early experience with rum, because as I
2: referenced in the intro, um, the, I got to that experience. Uh, about thirty years ago, and then rather stopped. so i'm 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 the, the kind of person here that you should be appealing to because I, I absolutely adore uh, my drinks. I adore my my spirits. So dawn, for the uninitiated, um talk us through the basics. Uh, what is rum, how it's made, where it's usually from, that that kind of thing.
1: So rum is based on sugar, um, in specifically sugarcane or uh, molasses, which is the byproduct of sugar. So, you sort of that's the base point to start with so you either have a rum that's made from sugarcane juice which is really sort of fresh grassy vibrant if you're a tequila or a mezcal lover seek out those sugarcane juice rums because they often have that lovely grassy vibe, sort of vivacious character that you find in tequila and mezcal um, and then you can go down the molasses route. to molasses, the byproduct of sugar, um, is this sort of lovely rich treacly product that um, then goes through a very similar distillation and fermentation process to any other spirit like whiskey or anything where you produce a wort and then it goes into the, the stills. Now, it, in, in rum there are sort of, I'll say so sort of three main types of stills that are used um, in a very sort of basic way of looking at it. You can make it a pot still, which gives you some sort of nice, rich, heavy styles, a little bit sort of like a single malt. You can do it in a, what we call a traditional column still, which gives you sort of layers of complexity, but often creates a slightly sort of lighter style, not quite so heavy as a pot still. And then we have what we call the multi-column rums. These are big, big sort of, like almost little vodka stills that kind of really do mass process and often produce produce rums that are very, very light and fresh, You know. Um, Those are the ones you would use sort of for the mixing. And you can have blends of all three styles um, together. So, you know, that's how we kind of look at rum as a very sort of top level, how it's made. Uh, There are very many, many different elements, of course, that go into that, including aging. You know, if you look at somewhere like the Caribbean and you compare it to aging in say, Scotland, in Scotland, you may lose sort of one to 2% to what we call the angels, where, in the Caribbean, it could be anywhere between five to even as high as sort of, well, I mean, some of the some more tropical countries in the world, up to sort of 10, 12%. So, you know, that's all disappearing, which is, I don't like to call it rapid aging because it's not, but it's changing the dynamic of the, the liquid in, in a faster way than you would do. And so if you have a rum that's, say, five years old, it can feel much older on the palate than, say, a whiskey that would be five years old and that's a lot to do with that, um, an extraction of the wood and the um, oxidizing the alcohols that's going on. Now, the main countries for rum, are, of course, the Caribbean is the best known, um, Barbados being the birthplace of rum, unless you are a cachaça drinker, and then it's Brazil. Um, but uh, it's, that sort of seems to be the home of, of rum making. And of course, then you have your different islands all around the Caribbean and Latin America, um, you have your agricole rums, which come mainly from the French um, colonised islands. And then now, actually, it's really, really exciting. As I mentioned earlier, it's all these rums that are springing up all over the world. In Australia, and I'm sure Mitch will touch on this when he talks a bit about the history. Who would have thought Scotland and England getting into the rum game? So it's a really wide and sort of varied spirit. You can get very many different styles from, as I said, these light, fresh, uh, rums all the way to these really tr- sort of rich, treacly styles. And Mitch, how
2: important are the raw ingredients for rum? You know, sugarcane is, is surely a fairly basic, uh, widely available crop, isn't it?
3: I think it's who you ask. Um, I mean, yeah, they're incredibly, obviously incredibly important uh, to the production of rum. And depending on where you are and which island you're you're on and, and which country is making it, it's, they're, they're each each place is going to use different raw ingredients in a different ways so as as Dawn mentioned before you know if we're if we're looking at sugarcane juice based spirits whether that's uh, yeah, agricole or clarin or um you know going going wider into things like cachassas as well the the terroir and the the locality of that sugarcane is is very very important and it's it's fascinating when you speak to the the people harvesting cane especially in places like Australia where you've got a huge huge amount of sugar cane up in Queensland and you'll have different varieties which you know mature at different points throughout the year and so they'll purposely have everything ready at different different stages throughout the year because obviously when you're growing in a tropical climate you have a different a different method to harvesting than you would say somewhere cold like Europe where you know you Plant in the spring and harvest in the autumn. You can, you can plant and grow sugarcane all year long. So, so sugarcane juice and and cane especially. I mean, there's so many different strains and varieties, and uh, you know, different ones have been bred to be more resilient against certain bugs and viruses to, compared to other ones. Certain ones have higher yields. There's, uh, there's really no end to what you can go into. So yeah, I, I guess on the face, it's it's you know, it's a grass, it's, uh, you know, it's, it can grow anywhere hot, but once you start getting into the, into the details, the devil's in the details, you know, it's, uh, there's, a, there's a lot going on there. Yeah, okay, well,
2: it's very similar to wine in, in that respect, uh, much more so perhaps than I, than I had uh, appreciated. And when it comes to colour, dawn, um, I, I, I really have no idea kind of what the significance of colour is. It seems to come from clear to us a sort of dark, treacly brown what is uh, the difference there and where's that color coming from
1: um if i could swear now i would um but i'm going to behave myself and and <laughs> be child friendly um so there is absolutely f all link with the color when you're hearing terms like gold and dark to what's in the bottom. Um, you could use the term white rum, but even with white rum, white rum, most people would think is unaged, but actually there's rums like Havana that have been aged for three years and then had colour removed from the same with Bacardi, you know? So even though you're saying white, they might have gone through an aging process. So even that tells you absolutely nothing. Um, you know, it's like saying, um, okay, all red wine tastes the same. Of course it doesn't. So And what does gold mean? I mean, gold is the most insignificant term in the planet. Gold rums can be just unaged rums that have had colour added to them. It doesn't tell you anything about the age or anything about it. So these are terms that we really need to get rid of in the language of rum. Dark rums, for example, these are rums where they just put a butt ton of caramel in half the time that have hadn't even seen an oak cask ever in their lives. So, you know, I think the how we talk about rum we have to really start using different language you know we can talk about unaged aged we can talk about you know how long they've been aged for you know for me that's the sort of basis of it saying okay these are rums are aged or they're unaged they are sugarcane juice they're molasses based you it could be around country which i know mitch um feels is quite a sort of a strong thing to be talking about when we describe what, what characters of rums are coming from. Um, I believe a lot in the kind of um, looking at in classification of how the rum is produced. So as I said, between sugar cane and sugarcane juice, if it's aged to origin, if it has any additions, um, what still type will really make a difference to how it's, it, it's sort of its flavor profile is. Um, we've done a lot of work on flavor. So we've now split all the rums in our in our portfolio into what we call flavour camps um, that just kind of give you a little bit more idea of of the actual flavours of the rums and not just gold, white, dark, which tell you nothing.
2: Uh, Mitch, um, I will let you chip in here as well. I I actually, doing my research um, last night, I was looking, uh, ended up on a sort of rum fan site I suppose and actually it's a a, a rabbit hole I disappeared into for about two hours uh, around this subject of classification and quality and um, what's out there and premium products that actually aren't premium they're just dressed up a bit and all that kind of stuff so uh, what's your take on on classification and and what needs to happen
3: oh it's a big question it's um it it is a tricky one as as Dawn says I mean color, color is usually where everyone starts and and it's the most meaningless thing ever, you know. And I think we we do have to look at other spirits, which are perhaps a bit more established and have done more education on the subject uh, to help people understand. Like if you, if you talk to a, a, a whiskey aficionado, you know, you you would never talk about whiskey in terms of oh, I like brown whiskies. Like okay, like <laughs> like wouldn't tell you anything. <laughs> if you talk okay. about well do you like scotch whiskey or irish whiskey more do you like bourbon do you like rye do you like japanese like where where are you coming from in your on your regions and then more than that they'd say well it's not it's not enough to just say say scotch it's is it highlands or lowlands Speyside, is an isla like and then you go even further and say well actually no this particular distillery does things very differently to this distillery which is a five minute walk away but the barrels on this side come out with these other nuances and, and you know, whiskey nerds can give you so much information um, on, on, their, on these tiny, tiny regions uh, of, of, of realms within Scotland and around the world in the whiskey world. And then we come to rum and it's like, what's the difference between Bar- Bar- Barbados and Jamaica? And, you know, most people outside the rum world have no idea, you know, it's like, well... I don't know. It's all rum, isn't it? You know, and, and we have this, we have this terrible misconception in the rum world, which pops up in articles every every other week, where rum has no rules. It's like it's bullshit. You know, rum has tons of rules. But Barbados rules are different to Jamaican rules. Are different to Martinique rules. Are different to uh, Saint Lucia. To Australia. To Venezuela. It's, you know, there's no one rule for whiskey. There's a rule for scotch, there's rules for bourbon, there's individual regional rules, and it's exactly the same in rum, but we have not done the, the level of education, the level of training around regions and local rules on it, and you know, we are, we're, we're probably a few decades behind the whiskey world in getting everyone up to that level where everyone can nerd out about it. So. So, yeah, in terms of classification, for, for me, it, all, it starts with the region, it starts with the place, know, know the island or the country where the rum is coming from. And then you can start to look at the individual distilleries, get more specific and, you know, treat it, treat every rum as an individual. There are no, we can't just generalise, we can't just stereotype. That's the easy way out. You know, it's like we need to get to know each place individually and then we'll really understand rum. And Mitch, how important is age in a rum? It depends what kind of rum you like to drink. You know, if you if you like, for instance, if you like a, a clarin from Haiti, uh, which quite commonly will come as an unaged, uh, beautiful sugarcane juice pot still spirit. I I love my clarin unaged. There are some beautiful aged clarets coming out, but for me, unaged is is the best thing ever um, when it comes to that particular spirit. Uh, I'm very similar to that with tequila as well. If you have an aged tequila for me, it isn't as vibrant as an unaged tequila. So and you see this with some of the overproofs as well, your rivers Antoine, your rare nephew, you know it doesn't need age to make it good. Sometimes it's just perfect as it is. Um, on the other hand, sometimes you can put some rum in into a barrel for a few years and you wait and something beautiful comes out the other end. and And that can be a wonderful experience, too. So, it really depends what you enjoy as a drinker what you like um and then finding something that matches your your palate your flavors your style um and then the other side of that question i suppose how important is age on a rum <laughs> depends on the rum because the 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 numbers on the bottle can be misleading so don't always take it at face value you've got to do a little bit of research in the rum world cuz you know we like to we might like to make it a bit complicated for people. And, uh, and yeah, it's not always a straightforward understanding if, if the age is exactly what you're being sold on the bottle. Right, so it's uh, what an average age is it then? Depends, <laughs> depends where you're coming from. There's a great new rule that's, uh, well, not, not so new anymore, but a rule in the EU that says, if it doesn't say years on the bottle, then the number isn't the minimum age of, of that rum so if you see something it just says 12 or 15 or 23 and you don't see a years next to it then yes chances are it's a not not even an average <laughs> average age just it's just really good marketing um to get people to pay more but if it says years on the bottle and if it's from certain countries um for instance barbados jamaica it's for, if it's from a producer that you know and you, again you have to do a little bit of homework um but if it says years on the bottle then that will be the youngest age of the rum in the bottle it might have older just like with whiskey you might blend 12 to 15 years or or higher but the youngest rum in the bottle has to has to be stated and say years on it okay well that, that's very helpful uh, dawn while i was in my rabbit hole my special
2: rum rabbit hole researching last night um, there was a debate around um, the addition of sugar, glycerin syrups, things like that. Is that a, a an area of controversy as well?
1: <laughs> Huge. I mean, sugar is probably the most divisive thing, even though it's the thing that makes up rum, it's also one of the most divisive things within the rum world, The you know, the geeks and everything. And there's a very sort of anti-sugar movement. Now, I'm of a belief that, you know, a consumer likes a style. So... If, for example, you're a spiced rum fan or you like sort of flavored gins and you want to start getting into sort of more serious rums, you are going to start with the sweeter styles. You are going to start with the, the styles that have had sugar added. And I have absolutely no issue with that as long as there is transparency for the consumer to know that something's been added. I'm much more anti kind of adding flavor and things like that unless you call it a flavored rum i think that's just not right that's not good practice but the addition of sugar in the same way you would dosage champagne in the same way you add sugar to say cognacs you know i don't see a problem but i as a consumer want to know so that say me i i don't particularly like a sweeter style of rum, I prefer a drier style. So I can then move away from that rum and say, okay, I'll try something else. But, you know, those rums do have a place. Um, They are the kind of rums that will bring the consumer through into the more serious rums. You know, when we grow up, we start drinking sweet things. We start our drinking journey, drinking Red Bull and vodka because we don't like the taste of alcohol. We're used to sugar. Um, And then, you know, you, 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 you sort of go on that journey and you start, say, drinking tea and coffee and your palate adjusts and moves away from sort of less sugary drinks. So, you know, I think what a lot of these guys don't realize is if you want rum to be the next big thing, well, we have to accept these rums with sugar added to them. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with it as long as it, one, is in tune with what the country is putting down in their laws. And two, that you know, we have full transparency from the consumer side. So, you know, all these people that are saying, "Oh, it's all wrong," yeah, na, yeah, yeah. Well, they're not ninety-nine percent of the consumer. So, you know, you have to educate people and bring them on a journey with you and take them from maybe those sweeter styles to these styles that are a little bit more complex and more interesting. But that's our job as Run lovers to do that we shouldn't ever give people problems or say that they're not drinking the right thing because they like a style you know it, it, it's totally wrong and i think that's something i'm very anti against in our in our rum world that we do kind of have this snobbery around I mean, sure you can't it's the same in wine you know if if you love a pinot grigio well you damn well love a pinot grigio uh, that's what you want to drink. I would never tell anyone not to. I would say, maybe try something else because you might find something more interesting. But if that's what you like, that's what you like. Mitch is laughing now because he's like, you don't let me drink food.
2: good good on you Dawn yeah Um, well uh, we're going to talk about the rum show because no doubt a lot of this is going to come up at the rum show uh, I would have thought uh, at the end of the month but in the next part of the drinking hour we're going to look at uh, the astonishing history of rum that's coming up after some rum recommendations but first here's news of another food fm program you might love Thank you, David. I'm Jenny Linford from Food FM, and I'm exploring the world of cheese, from brie to parmesan and everything in between. So after enjoying The Drinking Hour, why not listen to my series, A Slice of Cheese? You can find it on your podcast platform and foodfmradio.com. Now back to David and The Drinking Hour.
0: The Drinking Hour on Food FM.
1: Rum Edition, in association with the Whiskey Exchange Rum
0: Show. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world.
2: As it's the Drinking Hour rum special, our IWSC medal winners are, unsurprisingly, dedicated to that particular spirit. These are winners from this year's competition, 2021, the results of which were announced a week or so ago. This week, it's a rum deal. Mitch will be delighted to hear that we start with Black Tot 50th Anniversary Rum, awarded gold outstanding with 98 points. The rum celebrates the 50th anniversary of Black Tot Day, the 31st of July 1970, when the Royal Navy issued its last rum ration. More on that very shortly. The judges said a playful composition of flavour characters opens with candied fruit, candy floss, lemon and pear drop hints. This gives way to classic rum elements of pineapple, melon and chilli spice. A deliciously fun rum with a serious side. And that's available at thewhiskeyexchange.com. Next, a rum from Martinique, technically the southernmost AOP in France for those who know their AOPs. Trois Rivière Cuvée de L'Océan Rum won a silver medal. The judge's tasting note says, Fragrant, ethereal, herbaceous cane notes and a light palate with a charming sweetness that morphs into a dry finish. Mineral, minty, grassy, hay aromas and peppery, pungent, earthy notes too. The company behind it, BBS, Belloni et Baudelon and Sexes was distiller of the year at the IWSC in 2020, and an interesting rum from Thailand, where they use a unique aging process to cope with the humid Thai climate. The rum is aged in four-meter deep cellars next to lagoons, which helps slow down the maturation process. Friar Deep Matured Gold Rum from Sangsum Distillery won a silver medal. The judges saying, deliciously sweet notes of bitter almond, orange rum, and raisin creamy dark chocolate, spiced fruit, lifted leather and menthol, and an excellent finish.
0: The Drinking Hour on Food FM. So this
2: week's edition of The Drinking Hour is a rum special looking ahead to the rum show. And before we do that, we're going to talk about the incredible history of uh, rum. It has, of course, uh, famously a long association uh with the royal navy which inspired the name black tot of course uh mitch it seems slightly surreal that until the 1970s sailors had a daily ration of rum how did that come about and what was the point of it
3: well i think it's, it's always important to look through the 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 perspective of the time period you're in you know because the our relationship with booze nowadays is very very different to what it would have been you know even a hundred years ago I was um I was at a bar last night having a Guinness, you know, and thinking about these old Guinness posters you used to have like how it's good for your health, good for, good for your baby, good for everything, you know, and it's uh, our whole relationship with booze over the years has, has changed considerably. And if you go back right to the early days of, of these men going on sailing ships and the first navies being formed, you know, four or 500 years ago, water wasn't safe. You know, you couldn't just turn on a tap and, get some nice clean water to take on your voyage or store it in a, a plastic container. You know, you put if you put water in a barrel within two or three days it would be going off, there would be stuff growing in it, uh, you know, that would be far more poisonous. So the the standard issue on a lot of these ships was to take if you were coming from England to take beer because we were beer drinkers and if you were port of Portuguese you'd take port, if you were Spanish you'd take sherry, if you were French you'd take bloody everything you know but we we all took booze on ships and it was a a a, a liquid a way of hydrating that would last much much longer uh, than any other type of liquid which you know water you had to pick up from port to port as you got in and and you only had a couple of days of it so so booze on ships wasn't a new thing at all and then it was only when we really started going to the Caribbean and you had all of the colonial powers going there and and you know, the, the rise of all the empires out there, that was, that was the time where rum became synonymous with the sea and synonymous with, with the ships, you know, because we'd obviously drunk everything on the way there. And the question was, what are we going to drink on the way, way back? So rum very quickly filled that void. And, you know, it, we, we went through different stages with it. At the start, they, at the start it was very much your ship, your rules. So whatever, whatever you did, decreed your crew could drink, that's what you get gave them. Then from 1731, we decided to write down a Navy code book, and we said, uh, right, every sailor is entitled to either half a pint of overproof spirits per day, or eight pints of beer. Now, obviously, I don't know if you've ever tried sailor ships after half a pint of overproof or eight pints of beer, but it's pretty wild. (laughs) So they quickly quickly halved it and halved it again, and then they started watering down the rum, which became known as grog, and... um, and this tradition just carried on for officially for two hundred and thirty-nine years since they first wrote down that navy code, and it was only when we got to 1970, where they finally said, right, okay, maybe we should, maybe we should kill off this rum ration every day. And to to put that into context, in nineteen fifty-eight we invented nuclear submarines, <laughs> and for twelve years we've said should we still give the people on nuclear submarines rum every day and for 12 uh, years uh, we, said, we said yes <laughs> absolutely it's tradition you can't take our rum away so when they finally did they finally had a vote in parliament on the 28th of July three days later they gave out the last ever rum rations and it became known as black tot day it was the death of the rum tot and you know, a very, very sad day for the sailors because they'd lost, you know, part of their tradition.
1: And we've been very lucky, Um, Mitch found this absolutely wonderful gentleman who was one of the kind of the the guys giving out the, the tots and He's been on most of the things that we've done um, around Black Tot and you know, some of the stories he tells, and you know his fondness for that time is just really amazing. And I think we've we've been totally um, totally blown away by how how interesting that you know there's people today that would have had this as a general thing. It was very much a part of their working lives.
2: Well, it's a miracle we weren't totally blown away by a nuclear submarine, frankly, in <laughs> <Yeah>. uh, <laughs> the circumstances. But um, Mitch, Blacktot has made the most of its connections with navy rum, with some of these special bottlings. And I was reading up on the, the little jars of old navy rum that, that were still certainly still knocking around a, a while ago. Tell us a bit more about those special bottlings.
3: So. Really, Black Tot started with the actual Navy rum. And after 1970, after Black Tot Day, you know, they had a tremendous amount of rum to to supply the whole Navy fleet. You know, at its peak, they had anywhere around 4 million gallons of Navy rum available to supply the whole fleet. So, you know, if that was a rum brand today, it'd be a pretty big brand. And um, after Black Tot Day happened, what they did was they put all of this rum into these stone ceramic jars, these flagons, which each held one imperial gallon or about four and a half litres of rum. And they just put them in a warehouse and they just left them there uh, for about 20, 24 years. Uh, occasionally, you'd see one pop up for you know, a royal wedding or a state occasion, something like that. They'd pull out some flagons and serve them out. But otherwise, it was just, just in storage. They didn't know what to do with it. And then 1994, uh, a fencing company in Essex randomly brought <laughs> bought a load of flagons from them, uh, and sold it on to. There was some wine companies in France that had a bit. There was a company in America that had some, and it, it just became this thing where private collectors and and really ex sailors who knew about this rum would seek out these flagons and get them get themselves a jar. And it wasn't until about two thousand seven, two thousand and eight one of these sailors brought one of the flagons to our founder, Sikinda Singh, um, and said, do you want to buy this jar of rum off me? And Sikinda said, sure. And then that sailor told a friend of his who brought two jars along and said, do you want to buy these flagons off me? And he said, "Okay." And then they told another mate who brought ten flagons. And at that point, Sikinda goes, right, okay, where are you getting this rum from? I need to know, OK? Because he hadn't even tried it at this point, you know, so. He cracked open this flag and tasted it I was like, Oh my God, this is incredible. What is it? And like spent the next couple of weeks going back to it, going back to it, trying it, tasting it, seeing what it did. And he couldn't believe that this was what the Navy used to drink. So. He called up the Ministry of Defense, he called up all all the people he could over here. They said, no, we've already sold all the rum, it's dotted around the world. And he spent the next two years tracking these flagons down where they'd ended up, buying them all in, uh, you know, any any that he could that weren't with private collectors already, uh, brought them all together and then was like, right, well, we'd better better put it in a bottle. So the first ever Black Tot, which we released in 2010, was Black Tot Last Consignment. And it's a it's a blend of these navy rum flagons um and what i love about it what what brought me to the brand was that you know this isn't a navy rum or a version of navy rum like this is actually what they were drinking back in you know the 1960s 1950s you know back in wow. the day it's incredible to actually taste a piece of history you know so um so yeah so that that is how our brand started it started with that and for, for 10 years we, we didn't really do much else we just we just had that in a bottle and that's anyone who knew about it or knew this old story about navy rum would would seek out a bottle um and it's only in the last year or so where we've really decided to like okay this because that rum's running out you know soon that won't be with us anymore and and It'll just be a story we tell people of when we used to drink it. And so we thought, right, let's, let's get some new blends going that are a testament to this old rum uh, to keep the tradition alive, because otherwise it will be, it'll be gone forever and, and not many people would get to hear this amazing story of navy rum. It's incredible, and I had no idea. I kind
2: of, until I was doing my homework, had always assumed that, that sailors just drank crap, actually, and it went very far from it. So it's it's uh, it's it's amazing. One of the less glorious aspects of the history of rum is, of course, uh, the connection uh, with uh, slavery. And I know Dawn, you have to be uh, very particular, very careful about modern-day slavery, because of course slavery in its sort of modern forms is still there and albeit in a a different way very often what do you do as a buyer to ensure that what you're buying in is um sort of sound if you like in that respect
1: so i mean with all our suppliers we do compliance on them so you know anyone we bring in we do sort of ask questions we have an anti-slavery policy ourselves here I'm not sure it hasn't quite applied to me yet. Um, I still work like <laughs> that. <so. laughs> <laughs> you know, I think the, the the thing is, as a buyer, I I have to, you know, I'm the gatekeeper. I have to be very careful and aware of what we're buying. And there have been rum brands that have been pulled up for issues around not so much slavery, but treatment of of um, staff. Uh, I think you know especially when you're in you're working with countries that are poor um there are going to be abuses and you have to be really really aware of that you have to do your due diligence if you find anything that's dodgy you know you you cut that out straight away you know you ask questions of your suppliers i think you know we have to become more and more, our customer wants more and more traceability in the product they're buying and it's really important that we as buyers are asking the right questions, um, and that we're you know doing the right checks and rechecks. And I think the good thing about in the UK is there are bodies that are are very much aware of you know checking those things. They are holding us to accountability as well. So, you know, I think whilst you you do definitely in this in the drinks industry have issues around slavery, um, I think we're probably maybe having less issues in say the fashion industry. Um, I think the issues more with drink is probably around glassware and the actual where you're putting the product because you know so much now more of, of production can be mechanized and I think there's probably, it's less to a degree open to abuse than, than maybe some other things. But I think it's definitely something we have to be aware of and we have to be very sensitive to where we're buying product from and and are the people being treated. And I think there's amazing programs now like B Corp. You know, we're seeing more and more distilleries working on fair trade, B Corp. You know, all of that is just gonna help this problem. And, you know, definitely we then can be confident in what we're buying more and more. Well, that's good
2: to know. And we're gonna talk about perceptions and cocktails and the rum show as well, after we've had some more recommendations from the IWSC.
0: (laughs) The Drinking Hour on Food FM.
1: Rum Edition, in association with the Whiskey Exchange Rum Show.
0: You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode, in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world.
2: Time for our second round of medal winning rums from the 2021 IWSC Spirits Judging, conducted in June. Shibboleth Rum from Foursquare Distillery won a gold outstanding with 98 points. It's from Barbados. Under the guidance of Sir Richard Seale, the family can trace its Barbadian roots back to the 1650s. Foursquare is a passion project of Sir Richard, who personally hand-selects all of the casks that make the rums. And Shibboleth is available at thewhiskeyexchange.com. Next, it's back to Martinique for a gold medal winner. Clément Rare Cask Tokai Finish 3-year-old rum is an unusual rum agricole that was finished in old Tokai casks. Aged for three years on Martinique, it was then shipped and finished for 10 months in Hungarian Tokai barrels before bottling, giving it a raisiny sweetness. The judges said deeply complex with spice, bitter dark cocoa, wood and rich leather. Banana, coconut, cane sugar, and a deliciously savoury umami note. Delicately crisp texture and a long, refined finish. And finally, to Jamaica and a silver medal winner Rumbar, white, overproof rum. A classic white blended rum that's great for cocktails. From the Worthy Park Estate, which has been growing cane and making sugar uninterrupted since 1720. The estate is 10,000 acres in the heart of Jamaica, and 40% of this is under sugar cane. The judges said, nicely defined character with an elegant freshness and a perfect balance of molasses and tropical fruit. A hint of palmer violet caps off a rather delightful finish. Delicious.
0: The Drinking Hour on Food FM. So rum is being
2: build as the next big thing, the new gin, if you like. Uh, Dawn, um, is that true? Are you seeing this sort of phenomenal growth? Is it the the new big thing? Rum? Um,
1: So, you know, everyone that knows me knows that gin is uh, something I have a slight uh, um, antipathy, how am I saying that, antipathy to? She hates it. (laughs) so i am very 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 much hoping that rum becomes the next gin and actually i don't want it to become the next gin one of the talks we're doing for for rum show is about that and is about you know i don't want to see a load of flavored rums in the same way i see a load of flavored gins and if anyone could see me now i'm putting brackets around the word gin um you know i think gin's very much lost its sense of place it's 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 become something you know the definition of gin is it has to be the predominant flavor has to be juniper now there are so many in brackets gins out there that don't have that um and I think you know for me I get approached by gin brands all the time it's there's too many now um and my fear is that we're going to see this happening with rum I think you know where rum has a real opportunity is to talk to maybe the more kind of the brown spirit drinkers, potentially, you know, we're seeing a lot more whiskey people getting into rum, for example, a lot more cognac people really kind of transitioning to rum. So I think that there's this definite movement. I'm 100% sure that rum is going to be the next big thing. I see it in my sales. Um, So to give you just an idea, um, last year, we saw a hundred, I think it was about a a 73% growth in volume on rum sales. I think it was about a hundred and something on value, which for me, um, when I do, I do a lot of work on trends. If you see value outstripping volume, you know, it's a really secure trend. Um, And I do believe it, but what I don't want to see is just a whole load of horrible flavored rummy things um that shouldn't be called rums um and you know people that are just making rum because they think it's going to be the next big thing you know we need real producers doing some really really great product to ensure that this is a stable growth and not just a flash in the pan well, that's
2: really interesting. It's clearly, you know, premium that's uh, driving it, which is good news uh, for you, Mitch, and, and your brand. In the time that you've been working uh, in rum, how have you
3: seen perceptions of it change? That's a great question. I think um, I think most people's first reaction when they realize that there are good quality rums out there is just this surprise. You know, I, I, I did a lot of tastings over the last year, uh, virtually for some of the whiskey clubs around the UK. And... I I, I always remember I came onto one of them a little bit early and one of the guys was looking at these bottles of rum like he'd just seen like a meteorite drop out of space you know and and he's like shit I forgot to buy any coca-cola like can I drink these do I what do I need to do and I was like how do you normally drink your whiskey he's like well I have this fancy tasting glass and I I do this and, and this is how I drink it I'm like you do exactly the same thing with rum like if if you can't drink the rum by itself then you're not drinking a good enough quality rum you know there's 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 something in that where you know we probably all have had our first experience across any spirit category it might have been something cheap and nasty it might have been something out of our parents cabinet you know um, it doesn't mean that's that's all there is out there so i think the the perception is changing people are people are starting to realize wow there's some really really good stuff out there i think one of the things which i'm most excited to see is that producers are getting braver with some of their bottlings and they're putting out you know some of the higher abvs or cast strengths or interesting maturations and finishes which the whiskey world again has been doing for a little while now and 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 has a head start on us but we've we've very quickly started doing do that. And of course, you know, the same people who love these bigger, more interesting, complex flavors are, are discovering this in rum now as well. And finding that rum, not not only has that, but also this incredible variety of flavors to start with, you know, so it's, a, it's, it's a very exciting world for people to get into. And, um, and it's a good time to get into it, because as, as rum's perception is changing, you know, the value of rum is starting to go up and the, and the price of some of these bottlings are going up. But when you compare it to its equivalents in whiskey, it's still a fraction of the cost. It's a, it's a wonderful time to build up your rum collection at home. And what about in
2: cocktails? Um, are you approving of mixing it up with other things in cocktails?
1: Just so you know, Mitch will blend everything. He blends <laughs> wines together, he blends rums together. He blends... Mitch is the ultimate mixologist, <laughs> and I put that in brackets. <laughs>
3: I just yeah, I just I just like to see what flavours will do. I'm I'm I, I think I think one thing you'll find with the rum world and, and, and a lot of us is that um that that is one thing which we have never taken on from from other spirits. We we've never been snooty about putting a good rum in a cocktail and, and most of us discovered good rum through cocktails. Most of us went to a tiki bar or or somewhere that's specialized in rum and we had that first pina colada or we had a really good daiquiri or or something that was actually made well we went oh shit okay rum can be really good so thankfully I think we don't have that same uh, snobbery around putting good spirits in a cocktail and and quite often you'll see on these rum forums even you know people putting ridiculous rums at mm-hmm. home in cocktails that a bar could never afford to do because you'd have to pay like a £100 for the cocktail or something silly. But um, but people do that. People experiment with it and they have it. And and I think it's great. You know, I think the more ways we can get rum to people, whatever that vessel is, whether if you if you like things neat, great. If you like an old fashioned, try a rum old fashioned. If you like something else, like rum will find a way. There's so many different ways to, to enjoy it.
1: That's a flexible spirit that, you know, you have Uh, so many I mean even if we look at white rum there are so many flavors in white rum that you know it's like cooking with great ingredients you know rum gives you that in cocktails and you know I think that's what's so exciting about the rum category. Well, a rum old fashioned sounds
2: like a very good idea. Uh, The rum show is going virtual this year. Judging by the schedule on the website, there are no half measures. Um, Dawn, uh, tell us about this year's event.
1: So this is our first uh, rum show. I've been wanting to do a rum show for uh, the last five years and just never kind of got around to doing it. I mean, we have four other four amazing shows, whiskey show, old and rare, cognac show and champagne show. And it just felt like with my passion for rums Kinda's passion for rum that we wanted to do a rum show um and we we would have loved to do physical this year but we were just a little bit nervous over timings because it's the end of july and we you know and we said look we'll go virtual this year we have just looked at the site for our physical show next year so really excited about that but you know virtual we did virtual whiskey show it was an absolute Uh, runaway success and you know and i think that we've got some really we've got really great lineup i mean there's myself mitch and the amazing dave broom um hosting our sessions Um, And, you know, we're all a bit quirky, we've all got a lot of fun, you know, we don't want it to be boring, this isn't going, there are going to be really in-depth talks and tastings, but there's also going to be fun talks, like um, I'm doing a Rum 101, if someone just wants to learn about rum, Mitch and I are doing rum and popcorn pairing, which will just obviously go horribly pear-shaped. We're doing an overproof off where, you know, we take three massive overproof rums, three great bartenders, and they're just gonna be having a lot of fun. There's a lot of talks and tastings. It's, it's a really educative experience, but at the same time, we want it to be fun. You know, this is for people to kind of, if you're a geek, you'll find something for yourself. And if you're just starting out in, in the rum world, then you'll find something for, for yourself. So it's over three days um, at the end of July. And it's, you know, just going to be a a lot of fun. I can't imagine us not having... Well, I know Mitch, I, myself, and Dave always have a lot of fun when we're together. So I think uh, hopefully we'll take everyone else along for the ride.
2: Well, Dawn, Mitch, and Dave sounds like a cabaret (laughs) act.
1: Well, Mitch and I are known as sugarcane and champagne. And then we were having to (laughs) think what Dave was going to be called.
3: (laughs) Okay, Mitch, what are you looking forward to most at the rum show? Um, Well, last year, Dawn and I sort of did a precursor to this. Uh, for black tot day where we we live streamed about rum for 24 hours continuously um so i think one of the things i'm most looking forward to is sleep uh this year it's gonna <laughs> be much gonna be much more enjoyable <laughs> but i think the, the main the main thing i'm i'm excited about i mean this if you if you look at the rum show website there's there's a whole host of amazing sessions coming up and I mean for, for anyone getting into rum or anyone who is a rum geek it's it's just a dream lineup but um I think the thing I'm most excited to see is that rum is hitting a level where now it has its own show it has it's getting more and more interest you know we've had we've had uh wonderful things over the years and 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 rum fans you know starting up things like probably the most famous was uh rum fest for me burrell you know started up years ago and this brought this community of rum together and now for four companies like the whiskey exchange to be taking on rum and making it this bigger thing and, and creating their own show with it i think it's it's super exciting to see so i'm still waiting for the name change i'm still waiting for the rum exchange to come <laughs> through but sakinda's taking a little while to to it's the wine though,
1: exchange it. first, then it's going to mm, be rum
3: okay. <laughs> the rum exchange. The
2: brand is too strong, I suspect. So, Dawn,
1: <laughs> we're, we're Dawn, working on it.
2: <laughs> Dawn, just remind us then uh, when it is and how we can get involved.
1: So, if you go to um, therumshow.com, we have the t- tickets on there from um, July. The tickets will be sold through the Whiskey Exchange website as well. Um, we are launching on the, it, the, the it's the twenty thirtieth, and thirty first of July. Um, we also have an Instagram account, the Rum Show, um, Facebook, where the Rum Show. So you know, you can go through any of those places and, and find out more details about what's happening. Also something that's really nice that we've just launched is that throughout the month of July, um, not only will be Mitch will be on tour in various bars doing black tot um, throughout the land, but we've also signed up five bars, Trader Happiness, Trader Vic's, Beachcomber, Cotton's, Merchant House, and Lucky Cane, sorry, six bars that are gonna be running um, different drinks menus throughout the, the month. So, you know, we, we want to celebrate rum longer than just three days, um, but you know, so there's there's plenty for people to get involved in over the month and over the three days.
2: Okay, well it's been great chatting to you both, uh, Dawn on your soapbox, uh, Mitch uh, on your sunbed by the sounds of it, you sound so <laughs> kind of chilled out, but um, no, it's been really uh, great to talk, talk to you, and the, the Run Show sounds like it's going to be absolutely fantastic, just uh, some of the topi- uh, topics we've we've touched on are, are really interesting, There's there's so much more Uh, To be said, and I found it fascinating uh, down that rabbit hole uh, last night as well. Didn't know there was just so much to rum. So it sounds like it's going to be great. Thanks very much indeed for joining us on The Drinking Hour.
0: Thank you. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. Rum Edition
1: in association with the Whiskey Exchange Rum Show.
0: You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition using the vest in the world to judge the vest in the world.
2: And that's it from this special edition of the Drinking Hour and our rum special. My thanks to Dawn and Mitch. Don't forget the Rum Show, 29th to the 31st of July. It's all virtual. Details at the You can follow us at Food FM Radio on Instagram and Twitter and Mr. Venusaurus is me on Instagram and Twitter. Until next time, goodbye.